Hi, everybody. Alan Arnett here with another podcast on the blog on alanarnett.com. It is Tuesday, March 28th, 2023. And I have my good old friend, Lucas Frutenbach. He's here in, actually, he's in Austria. Hey, Lucas, how you doing today? Hi, Alan. How are you? I'm perfect. Thank you. Yeah. I guess you guys just switched over to summertime. So we had to get our, our timing aligned properly. Yes, it's still an issue in the European Union with summertime and wintertime. <laughs> so, yeah, here we here, find out each other here in Colorado. They're supposedly have passed a law that this is the last time that we're going to switch over and we're going to stay on summertime oh. forever. But um, you know, this is it's mostly politics, so we'll see what happens. Hey, listen, uh, the Everest yeah. season is coming up. And uh, lots to talk about here. So I want to talk about um, talk about Everest and uh, climbing. You're going to be climbing on the Nepal side since China opened up the, uh, well, technically they opened up their side, but uh, it's not really open uh, right now. It's going to be open in the fall, we think. We'll see. So I want to talk about a little bit about China and uh, also talk about oxygen. That's really the big topic for this podcast is the evolution of oxygen. And, um, and we're going to we're going to start off with a style question up front uh, to get that elephant out of off the table early on about, you know, is it cheating to use oxygen or not? And then we'll move into the other stuff about the evolution of, you know, bottles and masks and uh, regulators and flow rates and all that good stuff. So I think this will be really interesting for those people that uh, are interested in, in oxygen, or even if they're not interested, it'll be an education about, you know, why people use supplemental oxygen, what are the benefits, what's the downside, things like that. But first, um, tell us about, so you are really one of the major companies, foreign companies that climb on the Tibet side, and you prefer that over the Nepal side, if I'm not mistaken, but you run on both sides for exactly the situation that occurred this year, that because of COVID and other issues that uh, China has kept the north side closed, this will be, actually be the fourth year, I think, uh, and so um, we thought they might open up this year, but then they didn't. So kind of walk us through how you dealt with that whole situation of the on again, off again, and then your decision to just switch everything over to the Nepal side. Yeah, we have a, a, already, a, this is, the, as you said, the, the fourth year that they are closed. So we have already a, a, a bunch of people waiting for the north side and pressure is getting bigger and bigger. Um, and it was, we had commitment from the Chinese uh, government in, in November already that they will open this spring season and let foreign expeditions to, uh, into to Everest. Uh, but then the, the visa situation stayed uh, until about 10 days ago. Uh, it was that they did not issue tourist visas uh, for the whole China. So without a tourist visa, you're technically not allowed to enter China or some of the regions in China. Uh, and that also doesn't mean that you get a, a climbing permit. So we were still hoping for, for China to open up the north side to, to give us a, a climbing permit. But at the same time, we were pre uh, preparing our expedition for the south side as well to be able to move everything to the south side in case uh, China is not opening in time for the expedition season. And that's what finally happened. They start to issue, uh, issue tourist visas again, but no climbing permit for Everest for foreigners for the spring season. Uh, so we moved everything to the south side and we'll have our expedition in Nepal. 
So uh, Friedenbach Adventures, you guys have um, really been on the forefront on a lot of different, um, I guess, uh, style points. Uh, for example, with COVID, uh, in the middle of that crisis, you were just doing intense testing and you actually pulled the plug on your whole expedition because uh, you thought it was just too dangerous. And then also um, uh, you um, do a zero carbon footprint model. So first, talk a little bit about, uh, are you concerned about COVID in Nepal this year? And then talk a little bit about the technology with your zero um, carbon footprint. I think that's really interesting and also uh, newsworthy and noteworthy. Uh, I'm not too concerned about the, the COVID situation in Nepal, uh, mainly because most people are vaccinated now. So it's a totally different situation to 21 when we pulled the black. Uh, and the second thing is, uh, yeah, in most countries, COVID is, is, is not a big issue anymore. And, and we have a situation now that even if, if people get sick and symptomatic and, and are tested positive, it wouldn't mean that we have to, to, to end the expedition for safety reasons as we had in 21. Uh, we would just uh, isolate persons. We would uh, send persons to a hospital in, in, in Kathmandu. Uh, but the expedition can still go on because everyone is vaccinated and because the new variant uh, is is not that dangerous anymore. And I think it, yeah, it, it's uh, it would be okay to go ahead with an expedition even with COVID cases today. Uh, yeah. Totally different situation yeah, totally in twenty one. Um, and the, the the other thing, the the um, carbon footprint. Uh, I think it's it's a big issue. It's it's becoming a big issue for the whole expedition industry because it was it was ignored for many years. That it it was a big issue and a big topic and uh, in the whole travel industry for many years. Yeah. But the expedition and and outdoor travel industry, um, yeah, was not so much concerned about uh, their yeah responsibility in 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 this topic and. Uh, we started uh, to look at it where we can uh, possibly avoid carbon, uh, reduce our carbon footprint uh, and also compensate the part of carbon footprint that we cannot avoid. Uh, so at the end, our goal was to have a, a, a zero carbon footprint expedition and it turned out that it would even be possible to have a negative CO2 negative expedition uh, and what we could do last year nice. uh, uh, at the end and, and it, it took a lot of different pieces and parts uh, a lot of money and investment uh, but I think it will pay out over 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 the years and I, I ultimately I think it's it's our responsibility because it's it's the environment we work with where we earn our money and we have to take care about this and it's i think it's as simple as as this i guess a couple of parts of that is uh, in terms of power these days you have to have power at base camp because everybody has a cell phone and computers and so you use um, um solar panels to generate electricity correct Yes, we lose a lot. We use a large field of of solar panels, and last year we had one hundred percent solar energy. Okay. So we didn't use any uh, any power generators anymore. Uh, and even though we had a a film production in in, in our base camp, which used a 
consumed a lot of power and for, for all the equipment, batteries and cameras. Uh, but 100% solar energy and, and, and everything was fine. And so when you offset it to, because, uh, you know, to get all, for example, all the batteries it takes to store that um, that power, uh, is that brought in on helicopters or on, on yaks? Uh, we use both. And, and the interesting thing is if you use, uh, if, if if you make this calculation with, with, with offset, right. uh, you have, if you take a load of, let's say, 500 kilograms, 1,000 pounds, and bring it to base camp. You can either use a helicopter uh, or you can use yaks. Uh, if you use a helicopter compared to a yak, your carbon uh, footprint is uh, seven times lower than with the yaks. So it's it's not only bad to use helicopters, but of course, there's all, it's not only about the carbon footprint. It's also about social responsibility. You have the yak herders. You have it's this, that's a whole industry of yak farming, yak herders coming for the season to Everest to work that they earn their money to to feed their families. So you also have to hire these yak herders. You have to use the yaks because of the social responsibility. But on the other hand, if we have to bring in big batteries for solar solar panels. Uh, we use helicopters and, and we use clean, modern helicopters who have uh, less carbon uh, impact than yaks, which the, sounds crazy, but it is true. And the issue with the yaks is the methane. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the yaks exhaust is, uh, is more than the helicopter's exhaust. <laughs> That's what it is. Yes, that is fascinating. I had, I, I would have thought exactly the opposite. So I'm actually glad we went down that little. Me that too. Little so, um, cool. So you're going to Nepal this year. You've got a, you've got two teams. You have your classic team, which takes forever to climb the mountain, and they have to walk in. And oh my gosh, it's just, it, it's like <laughs> weeks. Whereas you've got this other team, which just flies in and they run up and tag the top and come back down and they go back home. Now, obviously, I'm joking with you because uh, you and <laughs> you and like Adrian Bollinger and a couple other teams are are just you know you really do the uh, flash expeditions, the rapid expeditions. So, kind of tell help us understand the difference in philosophy between those two: the traditional one versus your flash expeditions. Yeah, you have a traditional Everest expedition which takes about eight to nine weeks, where you do a slow trekking approach to base camp. Uh, and then once you are in base camp, you start doing rotations on the mountain, two, three or four rotations before you start your summit push. This is to acclimatize your body to uh, the altitude, to the lack of oxygen. And uh, the only, so, so we, we still serve this, uh, this market with our, what we call it classic expedition. Uh, it's not eight to nine weeks, but only six weeks. Um, because we, we already use, start to, to use uh, hypoxic tents, uh, even in the classic uh, team. That means we simulate altitude in hypoxic tents at home. So everyone gets this equipment sent home before the expedition starts. People are sleeping in these tents. These tents are simulating a lower oxygen level from a higher altitude and, and therefore simulate altitude. Um, you sleep in there and, and your body uh, starts to starts the same acclimatization processes that it would do in real altitude. And when you arrive in Nepal, you, you are already partly acclimatized and you can go faster to base camp uh, and, and be 
faster, do less rotations, basically. Um, with the with the flash team, we use this hypoxic acclimatization even more intensive and longer so that people are totally acclimatized uh, when they arrive in Nepal. They even did simulated rotations on the mountain up to Camp 3. So it's uh, 7,000 meters or 20, 21,000 feet. Um, and this way we can have an expedition to Everest in less than three weeks. Uh, and here comes the question, is this good or bad? Right, yeah. uh, I think it's it, it's what the market is, is demanding. And, and there are people who have simply have no time to go on an eight or nine week expedition. And this is the solution. Uh, at the end, uh, it's it's not having less time uh, of, of exposure to an hypoxic environment. At the end, it, it comes to even more time of exposure to an hypoxic environment and therefore acclimatizing uh, than on a traditional schedule. A tra if you take a traditional expedition, eight to nine weeks, that's eight to nine weeks exposure to high altitude or to, to a, a reduced oxygen level. <clears throat> With our flash expedition, we have eight weeks of hypoxic sleeping at home and then three weeks of expedition. So that's 11 weeks in high altitude. It's even, for your body, it's longer than a traditional yeah. expedition. Yeah. It's, what, what is the difference in the success rate? I, I know in the recent years, well, your teams are pretty, are relatively small compared to a seven summits trek, which may have 80 or 90 clients where you're going to have yeah. you know, a, a tenth of that. What's the success rate of your uh, flash compared to your classic? Uh, the success rate is the same on both. So, so it's wow. 100% in the classic and 100% in the flash team. Uh, same for the safety. It, it, it comes down to the same safety. I, I think it's really about you, the, the client's possibilities. If, if someone has the time to spend six, seven weeks on the mountain for the exp expedition, I recommend using the classic expedition because it's for the experience. Yeah. Um, if someone simply can't get off work more than three or four weeks, it's it's the flash expedition. I'm really glad and, to hear you um, say it for the experience because that that's really my only uh, whatever criticism of the of the rapid the flash is that yeah. you know you come there and you do the mountain and you go back home and for me the trek in on especially on the Nepal side is just magical. Uh, staying in the tea houses and walking underneath Amma de Blom. And, you know, it's just, it, it just, it's just, it's life changing. And then, uh, yeah, I realize and acknowledge that there are risks in being at base camp and being exposed to, you know, bacteria and, and perhaps illness associated with the lower oxygen and, and hygiene. But most of that stuff has been mitigated through good techniques these days of, you know, washing hands mm -hmm. and the, and the cooks are outstanding and taking care of the food and double boiling water. But it is about the experience, isn't it? That 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 classic, uh, you get to you get the experience of a good old fashioned expedition, mountain climbing expedition. Yeah, I totally agree, uh, and that's exactly what I tell people when they approach us. What what expedition, what option they should choose? Uh, but then, 
some people have been at base camp already. They did a trekking, they, they climbed other mountains. So they, they have this experience already. And then it's just about tagging the summit. And yeah. then and then they they go for the flash expedition. Well, I always also compare this to like airplanes that, you know, you've got, uh, you can fly across the Atlantic in first class or in the last row of the airplane. You're basically going to get to the same place, but it's your experience and yes. style that you prefer. So. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the point. So this is a good segue to go into the whole oxygen. Uh, you've touched on it a little bit with the hypoxic uh, altitude tents. And um, actually, um, I, didn't, I didn't realize that you could actually acclimatize to 23,000 feet or 7,000 meters. I thought it was more around 17,000 feet. Um, but you do a very special, I've had some Summit Coach clients that have used your program, and they talk about, you know, reporting in every morning of what their, their stats are. And, you know, your team is monitoring it very closely. Uh, and it's an entire, it's an entire um, uh, approach and a system that you use to uh with these this pre-acclimatization can you just kind of briefly talk through what is that process because and, and help us give us the big picture first it's a it's a plastic bubble around a, your bed or your office chair and then you have a generator and what does that generator do specifically yeah uh, so it's a plastic tent it's basically a tent around your either your head or your, your upper body or your whole body it's it's both options are possible uh, and th this tent is placed on your bed at home. It's uh, with a tube, it's connected to a, to a generator and the generator is sucking in air from, from your room, from the environment mm -hmm. and pushing this air through um, a filter, uh, which reduces the amount of oxygen. And then you get this reduced oxygen air in uh, your tent and this is what you what you breathe uh, during your sleep and you can set the amount of oxygen that you get inside the tent and this is how you set uh, the the altitude base the simulated altitude uh, and the point is acclimatizing is always very individual it, 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 it it's different for every person no matter if it's in a tent in a hypoxic tent or it's in real altitude. Some people take longer for acclimatization, some, some acclimatize faster. It depends on, on, on many different factors. Um, and I think that this is one of the main advantages of, of the hypoxic pre-acclimatizing because we can customize or individualize the acclimatization process to you what your body needs, how your body responses. And, and this works with a, with a feedback loop every morning. You, you, you measure your SpO2 and, and your heart rate and you give us in an online form you, uh, feedback of, of, of the data you take in the morning. And depending on these data and our, our data pool we have, uh, we can decide what will be the, the ideal next sleeping altitude for you. Uh, so it's never a, a standard protocol that you do during these eight weeks. It's always individualized to you and to your body's response. And, and that's the, the key factor for the success of acclimatization. Uh, on a classic expedition, you would, uh, in real altitude, you would follow a standard protocol because you follow a fixed uh, tracking uh, schedule, itinerary to base camp. And then you follow fixed uh, rotations. This might work for 90% of all people, but if you are unlucky, you're one of the 10%, uh, 
and, and it's simply too fast for you. You would need another loop, another rest day, lower down and all this stuff. We can, we can make this happen with the hypoxic, with the simulated altitude, but not in real altitude. So even if someone is a, is a slow responser, as we call it, and, and takes two, maybe two weeks more for acclimatizing, it's no problem if you do it at home. They all arrive with the same level of acclimatization when they are in, in, in Kathmandu. So you, you insist that everybody go through this process because that would be an issue if you have, let's say, nine people that did and one person that didn't. How do you manage that logistically? Um, yes, everyone has to follow this, this, uh, hypoxic protocol that's for the flash expedition. It's, it's, it's mandatory. Right. Um, and, um, we get the data that from, from the clients during the whole process. So we, we can see the development of their SpO2, of their heart rate, even of their blood. Um, and then this is, uh, this is enough for us to decide uh, if, if a person is, is uh, sufficiently acclimatized uh, and has a, a certain level of acclimatization where we think this is safe to go on the expedition now. And I think it's important to mention because in, in over, I would say 20, 2001, so, so I'm working with hypoxic uh, tents for 22 years now, but we work with clients since 2008. So that's uh, 15 years, 16 years already. And never, we had a single, never a single client who could not summit or who had to quit the expedition because of, uh, of uh, improper climatization or because he had problems with altitude or acclimatization was not good enough. So that's impressive. I'm very convinced that, that this is, uh, this is enough proof that this system works. It works yeah. And, and, and it briefly, it, this is, we often think of it as being a relatively new uh, technology, but to your point, you've been doing it with clients since 2008. And didn't it, it help me here. Didn't it actually some groundbreaking research start in France back in the sixties or seventies or fifties? Yeah, in, yeah, in, in the 80s, uh, 78 was the first study was sponsored by Rolex, by the watch oh. Rolex. Uh, it was called the, the, the COMEX uh, study, uh, and they simulated a fast ascent on Everest in, in a hypoxic chamber, uh, and the results were great. So they, they tried to repeat this in, in real altitude uh, about five or six years later. And they, they are pre-acclimatized uh, a team of, of professional climbers in this hypoxic chamber in, in France. And then they sent them to Nepal, to the South Pole, within one week from France, seven days from France to the South Pole. Oh, my gosh. I think it was, I think it was 90 or 91, so early years of Everest, of commercial Everest climbing. And, and they did all well. They could not summit because of the weather, but... Uh, South call is, is, is pretty high already. That's really impressive. So yeah. So wow, this goes back, well, almost well, 50 years roughly. So yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so I guess this is not, not so new after all. <laughs> um, yeah. The only thing that is new is, is the, that it became mobile, that, yeah. that you can have these small hypoxic tents that we can ship to people home and, and, and you don't have to go to a university and, and and visit this hypoxic chamber 
Yeah, another thing, and then we'll move on, uh, that I've heard people comment, though, is that they they don't sleep as well um, during that process. So I know that um, I was talking to one individual, and he went through the process, and I, he, I talked to him the day before he was leaving for an 8,000-meter mountain. He goes, Alan, I'm, I'm exhausted. I haven't had a good night's sleep. And then he sent me a WhatsApp message from Camp One on the mountain that he went to, and he said, oh, my gosh, I feel fantastic. This, this pre-acclimatization, it works, it works. So I guess there's a little bit of a you know, double side to it. Yeah, the point is that acclimatization is ne never feels good. <laughs> you always have the, the side effects and symptoms of acclimatization. No matter if you do it on a mountain or at home in your tent, you will have bad nights in your tent. The higher you go, the worse the nights. It's the same symptoms, the same effects uh, of acclimatization but better have them at home than on the mountain because once you're on the mountain and you had these bad nights already, you have better nights uh, in, in high camp. And it's important and it's true, you have hard nights, You, especially with work and training, it can interfere a little bit. And last week I had a discussion with Steve House because we are from Uphill Athletes, because uh, we, we are developing a training plan uh, that considers this hypoxic training. Uh, it's important to reduce your cardio training while you are sleeping in the tent because sleeping in the hypoxic tent is already cardio training. Yeah, interesting. So I guess what you're saying is that the human body likes oxygen. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> needs oxygen very hard. <laughs> and it doesn't matter if you're at home or you're on the mountain. If your body doesn't get oxygen, it's not going to be happy. And so that that takes us into the whole idea of um, supplemental oxygen. And, you know, anytime this subject comes up, whenever I, I write about it on my blog, I always get somebody who goes, you know, Alan, that's cheating. You know, people using supplemental oxygen, they don't understand that, you know, mountaineering is a pure sport. And, you know, to use that is the same thing as doping, like in the Tour de France. And, you know, and so, uh, and I always just defer that entire discussion because if somebody's convinced it's doping, then you're never convinced them otherwise my experience is that pick a number 95 99 of people that follow mountaineering don't really care um that and so what is your what is your official position on the style and the cheating relative to oxygen <laughs> uh that's very simple my official position as a, as a guide company is that we have to use oxygen because it's it's the number one uh safety feature on Everest. And, and it's the number one factor that makes an expedition on an 8,000 meter peak safe. So it would be uh, unresponsible to, to, to let people, clients climb, to guide clients without using oxygen. That's the official position. I understand the approach that uh, people, people like the idea of, of having the challenge of, yeah, competing and, and and being successful in this altitude where your body is basically not able to, to survive for a longer period without oxygen, but trick your body and be fast enough and be fit enough to climb up and down without dying, without oxygen. Um, that's an idea that, that Reinhold Messner brought up. Um, and he, I, I think it's in, in Europe, it's, it's this idea is even more important than in the US. Absolutely. Here, more people, especially in the German speaking countries, care about this idea. Uh, 
because of Reinhold Messner, he has a big media reach and, and he, yeah, he, he implemented this idea in our heads that climbing mountains is only good when you are not using oxygen. Climbing mountains is only good when there's a possibility that you could die. If there's 100% safety, it's not real climbing anymore. That's what he said. Uh, I don't agree with that. I personally, as a climber, can do whatever I want and follow whatever idea I have or someone else has, as long as I am not uh, involving other people around me and bringing them into a dangerous situation because they have to help me because I run into troubles on summit day without oxygen. As long as I'm alone on a mountain and I risk my own life, I, I think I can do whatever I want. It's no harm to anyone. But as a guide company, we have responsibility. People pay us for safety. So we have to use oxygen. No question. Yeah, I think where uh, part of the um, controversy, controversy comes in is that people are trying to apply uh, rules to a sport which fundamentally has no rules. Uh, you know, mountain climbing, climbing Mount Everest is not the Olympics. It's not the Tour de France. Um, you know, there's not judges with stopwatches and people scoring you on style. It is an, a unique and individual sport that you can choose to do whatever style that you want to. You know, even if you're even the, uh, you know, the IFMGA organizations, they're, they're not specifying how you do it other than techniques or mainly around safety uh, when it comes to being a professional guide. So. I don't know. It's a little apples and oranges when it comes down to, you know, you're breaking the rules. Well, you can't break a rule. There are no rules. So you're, you actually have, not only do you believe in this entire hypoxic approach and oxygen approach uh, as a fundamental tenet of your company, you've actually made some serious financial investments and now um, have a company, Everest Oxygen, that uh, is working on some breakthrough technologies. And I want to break it down very uh, kind of semi-briefly, but let's be thorough, into um, the oxygen delivery system. So the mask, the regulator, which is really the brains of the whole outfit. And then you've got the canister that holds the actual oxygen. So let's let's go in reverse order. So the actual, you know, the Russian company, uh, Poisk, was the one that I think kind of helped to commercialize using supplemental oxygen with their, uh, their steel and aluminum canisters. What are the canisters that you use today? What's the technology behind the physical, the physical bottle? How much do they weigh? How much do they hold? How long do they last? Uh, the problem with the oxygen cylinders is always that we, as climbers, we want to have them as light as possible, but they should also be strong because they should hold a pressure of 300 bars. And that's that's a very high and very dangerous pressure. So they, they should be solid, but not too, too heavy. Um, uh, today, as a modern cylinder is about when he's when, when the cylinder is full, it's 3.8 kilograms. That's about 7.5 pounds. Um, and uh, it's made of a steel liner inside, a very thin steel liner, and then a wrapping of carbon fiber uh, and fiberglass around uh, the cylinder. And that makes it very solid and, and very safe. It's, it's all certified equipment. And on the other hand, very light. And that technology has um, it's evolved a little bit, but not a whole lot over time. So let's move now to the regulator. Yeah. 
the regulator is is really the brains. Like I said, it controls how what the flow rate is. And traditionally, let, let's just set this up for a second. Traditionally, when I first used supplemental oxygen on True OU in 1999, I had a, a complete Poisk system. I had a, the Russian MIG mask, which leaked, and my regulator. I, I would put it on two, and I had no idea if it was four or zero. That thing was just horrible. And, uh, you know, and then the bottle was heavier than what we use today. But that regulator today is really changed a lot. So talk us through the evolution of the engineering there, because you've done some pretty interesting technology changes with that regulator. Yeah, the regulator is, as you said, the brain of the whole system and also maybe the most important piece of equipment in, in this system, because it, it regulates the pressure from the cylinder at 300 bars down to four bars, which uh, is, is coming to your mask. And this is a huge drop, drop in pressure. So it's a, it's a very complicated piece of equipment, technically. Um, what the regulator does is not only reducing the pressure from the cylinder so that the oxygen can flow with a low pressure into your mask, it also, uh, you can also regulate the amount of oxygen that is flowing into your mask. We call it the, the, the flow regulator. So you can set a flow of uh, liters per minute. And this is at, at the end, the amount of oxygen that you are using. And um, it, it has, that's a long history of how much oxygen uh, uh, people used on, on, on a summit attempt. Um, let's start with a, with, a, with a flow rate of two liters. This is what has been, uh, a standard for many many years right uh, goes back even in the 60s a two liter flow rate was a standard and it, it, it if you if people ask me how how much reduces the amount of oxygen at the summit of everest for your body yeah. um it's it's a it's a, it's a whole yeah it could be a whole podcast this question because it's so many factors that are affecting this but you can you can say as a rule of thumb uh two liters flow make Everest summit maybe 800 to 1,000 meters. So um, let's say 3,000 feet 3, lower. Uh, but it's still an 8,000 meter peak if you take your mask off. Right. Um, but of course, uh, when you have more oxygen available, when you have systems that can deliver more than two liters a minute, it would make the altitude that you feel uh, even lower. And therefore, maybe uh, increase your oxygen saturation in your blood and therefore increase the performance of the climber so people can climb faster. Uh, and that's what Russell Bryce started uh, with his operation on Everest. Uh, he got regulators that could deliver four liters a minute. And he let climbers climb on the summit day with four liters a minute because they were their speed doubled. So they spent half of the time uh, in, in, in the dangerous zone. They went to the summit in and back from South Col in uh, eight hours instead of 16 hours what it was before. Right. So for him, it, it was about safety. Giving more oxygen means they are faster and, and less exposure time in a risky zone and therefore more safety. And what we did, uh, when we took over Summit Oxygen, we said, okay, we want a regulator that is able to develop, to deliver even more oxygen. Uh, because we 
did not only look at the time that a climber needs to climb from the south col to the summit and back. Uh, what we were looking at was uh, the oxygen saturation in the blood, because this is the 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 data or this is the indicator if someone is developing an altitude problem. Um, if you keep the oxygen saturation above a critical value, above a critical limit, uh, you can be not there's never 100% safety, but you can be very sure that this person is not developing an altitude related medical problem. And, but for this, we needed a, a regulator with more flow, six liters a minute. And then even at the end, now we are at eight liters a minute. And eight liters a minute is the maximum what this system with this size of reservoir uh, works in, a, in an efficient way. If we want more than this, we have to come to another system, which we can talk about later. It would be a demand system. Uh, but what we are, and this is, I think, important because I didn't mention this before. What we use now in Everest is, uh, and, and that was used for, for the last almost 70, 90 years, is a constant flow system. So that means, in simple words, if you turn on the regulator, oxygen is flowing in a constant flow from the cylinder into your mask, which is not very efficient because you can't breathe that fast to use all the oxygen that is uh, streaming into your mask. So that's why we started to have uh, reservoirs on the masks where the oxygen is streaming in and then you breathe basically a mixture of the oxygen from the reservoir and there's a second valve in the mask where you inhale environment air and and that's a mixture of environment air and pure oxygen that you inhale um, yeah and and now we are at, at the flow rate of, of eight liters with a constant flow system uh, just to give you a number uh, with a two liter flow rate one oxygen cylinder would give you oxygen for about 10 hours mm -hmm. with eight liters it's uh, it's down to two hours for one cylinder. So you need a lot of cylinders if you let someone climb at eight liters. What we do is we use these eight liters only for, uh, yeah, for, for small sections of the route. For example, for the Hillary step, to, to let people climb at a, at a very fast pace uh, to avoid traffic jams, for example. So they're not using eight liters from base camp to the summit and back, because that's what a lot of people, when they hear the high flow rates, they jump to that conclusion. When do most of your clients begin using uh, supplemental oxygen, even at two liters per minute? Most people start using oxygen between camp two and camp three. Okay. Some people uh, only when they start, when they leave, when they depart from camp three. Uh, and most people, th that's maybe important. The, the flash expedition where we have these eight liter per minute regulators at the end they they, they use about the same amount of oxygen than the classic expedition uh, so they have eight liter flow for the summit day for the hillary step for example uh, but at the end the overall consumption of oxygen is about the same that's interesting yeah and the mass technology what's really changed there is that reservoir 
I guess uh, Ted Atkins kind of pioneered that uh, basically look like a Nalgene bottle hanging off of the mask and now it's more integrated. Uh, but the uh, the mask, they fit tighter. It's a better seal around your face. I guess you uh, also advise people to shave off your facial hair uh, if they have any. I never did that. But uh, <laughs> it's for a tighter, a tighter fit, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, the mask is the most problematic part. It's not the, a dangerous piece of, of, of this oxygen system, but it's the most problematic part. And, and the one that is the hardest to, to, to improve, to, to make yeah. it better. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, yeah, Ted Atkins started with the reservoir with, with the uh, bottles. Uh, it was a good first step, uh, but it was annoying to have this bottle floating around your head and, and your backpack straps and, and all this. It was not perfect. Uh, now the reservoirs are attached to the mask uh, in different sizes. We can use basically whatever size we need. And the size is determined by the flow rate you are using. So the higher the flow rate, the, the, the larger the reservoir should be. Um, but then it's about efficiency for the mask. And a mask is efficient if it is it has a very good ceiling with your face. So you have to shave. It has to, to fit tight. We have different sizes of mask to fit every form of, of, of uh, shape of, of face. Uh, and then it's also an important factor how often you take off the mask. Because mm -hmm. when you talk, especially when the mask on, uh, you have moisture inside them coming inside the mask as soon as you take off the mask this moisture freezes and then all these little um, um, valves and parts of the valve start to freeze and then can cause problems with the mask when you put it back on so yeah. we recommend people when they have to take off the mask put it immediately inside your down uh, suit Heat it up. talk or do whatever you need to do without mask and then put it on again yeah, I've told this story before. I was coming down the Hillary step in 2011 and, and my oxygen mask, it was a top out um, uh, Ted Atkins company and uh, it uh, it froze. I mean, the entire mask froze. And so I remember I was coming down and I, I looked down at Kami and I pointed at my mask and he understood exactly what was going on. I got down to the bottom of the Hillary step. He walked over, just took his fist and just bam, just knocked, hit, hit my mask <laughs> until the, the, uh, the ice broke up. So that is a critical part. In terms of reliability, these days, the systems are, are very reliable. I, there was an incident a few years ago where there was a, I guess it was a manufacturing problem with a, a batch of regulators that uh, began to uh, malfunction. Um, I remember getting a call from Adrian Bollinger at the second step on the north side talking about that and asked me if I could help get the word out. But overall, with that one um, caveat, they're pretty reliable, the oxygen delivery systems are. Yes, uh, I would say the, the latest summited oxygen system that most people are using now on Everest, right. I think it's a market share of, of almost 90% now. It's big, yeah. uh, so really nine out of 10 climbers are, and Sherpas are using uh, summit oxygen masks and regulators. And I think it's the, the most reliable system we can have with this form of research and development. And it, it, the systems have never been that reliable as they are now. And the incident in, in 2019, no, sorry, 18 it was. Yeah, 18, yeah. Uh, was caused by a, a very special atmospheric situation with a lot of humidity in the air. Uh, only at a certain level of between 8.5 and 8.6. Yeah. We also had the same problems. 
and very cold temperatures. And this combination caused, uh, actually, it, it sounds strange, it was not a malfunction, it, it was a safety function. It caused uh, the pressure release valve to be technical in the regulator to release pressure because uh, there were ice building on O-rings inside the valve. If this is happening, it should not happen. That's that's a, a manufacturing problem. That's why all these systems have been updated after this. But what this caused, this ice forming in in building in in the valve, uh, can be dangerous because of the high pressure in the cylinder. It could cause a, a cylinder to explode. But for this, uh, there's a, a safety feature in in the regulator. If this is happening. It has a pressure release valve, and this is releasing pressure if if the pressure is in inside the regulator is getting too high. Uh, so it was at the end a safety functions, but people who experienced this, and as I said, our team had the same problem, uh, were getting scared because it makes a lot of noise if pressure is coming out quickly out of, of such a filament regulator. And first thing, it, what you think is uh, it's a they are somehow exploding the next moment. Yeah. But of course, nothing did explode. It was just releasing pressure, controlled release of pressure, but this makes noise. And this was scaring people, especially the clients. I can imagine. But after that, all, all regulators on the market were called back to the factory and, and got an update to avoid this, uh, yeah, with a small update, a very simple one, basically. Uh, earlier, you, uh, just a moment ago, you mentioned that uh, uh, clients or members and Sherpas both use oxygen, but the Sherpas run at a lower flow rate um, all the way because they're just genetically predisposed to perform better at altitude. But uh, all of your Sherpas also use supplemental oxygen, correct? Yes, all of our Sherpas use and work on oxygen. It, it would be unresponsible to let them work in this altitude without oxygen. Yeah. So. They, they get as much as, as much oxygen as they need and want uh, for their work. Don't they typically, though, run at about two? Uh, most chappers for the, on the summit push, they run it at two. But if they have heavy load day, carry days, like carrying uh, a lot of oxygen cylinders to the south coil, for example, they, they climb uh, on a higher flow rate because otherwise they wouldn't be able to, to carry these heavy loads. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, we also, you touched on um, the, well, let me back up. If you look at the history of oxygen delivery, I mean, it really started both from a medical and a, and a military uh, background. That's where a lot of this basic research, you talk about the, um, you know, the regulator technology, a lot of that stuff was pioneered. In fact, I guess Ted Atkins and Neil Greenwood both had a, um, uh, an engineering and military background. So that's where a lot of this came from. Um, but one of the things, if you look at the delivery system, it, you talk about a constant flow rate. If you go to a hospital, you have these canisters or that little tubes that go into your nose. So totally different uh, oxygen delivery system. And I know that Neil had experimented with that for climbing. And, it's, and I think he called it a pulse, P-U-L-S-E, pulse delivery system. And it would be kind of an on-demand and you hinted a moment ago that perhaps is the next evolution in this, mm -hmm. that instead of having the constant flow rate, it would be pulse. So talk a little bit about what's, what would be the biggest advantage of the pulse over the constant? Yeah, uh, we basically have three methods of, of, of delivering oxygen. We have 
the system that most people use today, all people use today, that's constant flow. Not very efficient, but simple and safe. Um, then the second one is a pulse dose. So that means that the, the regulator gives a, a, a dose of oxygen that you can set the amount of oxygen in, in each dose uh, at a certain pulse rate. Uh, and both uh, parameters you can set. So I can say, let's say, uh, within one minute, I want 30 doses of this amount of oxygen, 100 milliliters or whatever. Um, this is the, the, the application that it's used in a hospital environment, mainly, uh, or for, for jet pilots in, in, in uh, aviation, in military. Um, for climbing, it has one disadvantage. When you climb and when you, when you exercise, your breathing rate is not constant. Uh, the more, the harder you climb, the faster you climb, the higher your breathing rate. And the pulse dose is not increasing with your breathing rate. So it stays the same pulse dose, which might be good for breathing rate at 30, let's say 30 breaths a minute, but not for 60 if, if you are out of breath. So you don't get enough oxygen. Where you could use pulse dose system is for sleeping, for example, in high camps. And be, the, the advantage of using a pulse dose system is it's much more efficient. It, it saves a lot of oxygen that is wasted in a constant flow system. So, but the next uh, evolution would be with a pulse dose system. And this is where we are working now. Um, to have a pulse dose system that is adjusting the dose and the pulse to your needs. Uh, and ideally, this is combined with uh, your SpO2. So depending on your SpO2, you get the dose that you need. And then there's a, a third uh, form of application, uh, which would be a demand system. Uh, the demand system, you can imagine of uh, you inhale with a mask on. And the moment you start to inhaling, the oxygen valve opens and gives you pure oxygen inside your mask. As soon as you stop inhaling, the demand system stops to deliver oxygen. So it's very efficient, but uh, it also consumes a lot of oxygen because you inhale a certain amount of liters and this is purely pushed into your lungs. Uh, and there are um, there are applications where this could be useful, or where this could be the, the the form of of delivering oxygen, the preferred form of delivering oxygen. For example, for the summit day, but not for the whole climb. So the, the future of oxygen systems on Everest, to break it down, uh, will probably be that we will see different systems for different requirements. Uh, we can have, but the main, yeah, I have to, to, to add this, the, the main point on, on oxygen systems on Everest, because it is such a hostile and dangerous and, and extreme environment with temperature, winds, humidity, and all this stuff, right. um, the systems still have to be simple and, and, and safe. And the, the more complex you make a system, the, the, the more risk you, you, you put into this, into this whole system. Uh, so on, the, on one hand, we try to keep it as simple as possible, 
On the other hand, we try to make it as efficient as possible. And as efficient as possible could mean in future to have a pulse dose for lower elevations, for sleeping in high camps, and then a demand system uh, for the summit day. Yeah, that, that would make, make it more situational. Yeah, the more complex you have, the more uh, points of potential failure. So it's the you know yeah. the KISS principle, keep it simple, stupid. Uh, that's what I think the Army always said. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, and so as we uh, wrap up here, one of the other, um, you talked earlier about the SPO2, the, the uh, pulse oximeter readings on your, you know, either using a watch or a finger method, whatever. Um, but monitoring a climber's health and their, you know, their respiration, their uh, oxygen saturation, uh, lots of vital signs. Uh, you've you've played around with some telemetry and having that um, perhaps monitored from a remote point of view. Um, any updates in that area? Did that ever, did it pan out? Are you still using those type of te telemetry technologies where you've got somebody sitting in Zurich and or in, in uh, Innsbruck monitoring your climbers at the South Pole? We are still using this. The main problem is... Uh is internet connection yeah. so we need the north side to be open to to run all these systems because on the north side we can have a 5g network all the route to the summit and this is what we need to have a live stream of of, of the data and uh, uh, all the readings uh, on this on the south side we can do it we can do it with a satellite uh, connection but it's it's simply too slow to have it uh, to use it as a live stream um, and it's not a reliable connection. So that's a, a technical problem that at the moment we can't affect. Uh, the point is we, we still uh, monitor climbers uh, with SpO2 measuring in, in, in a glove uh, because it's, it's also giving reliable uh, data even when you move when, because all the, the watches have, uh, yeah, not very reliable results when you're in movement. For the nights, it's okay, but not in, in when you're active. Uh, but the system with the gloves works pretty well. It's just that we have to, to monitor uh, uh, more analog and not digit, not remote. So, so the, the guides are monitoring the readings on the, on the monitors of, of the climbers and then set the flow rate uh, according to the readings. And given that you've had 100% success in recent years, I'm assuming you've never had the the uh, the cultural challenge of turning somebody around when you, you know, you go up to them and take a reading and say, hey, you're at, you know, your your blood oxygen saturation is at 55%. I'm turning you back. And they go, well, I feel fine. No, I'm not going to turn back. So you haven't had that difficult situation yet. No, not yet on Everest. Uh, and the point is it, this is a concern that some people have with, with the monitoring, but the opposite is, is, is the case uh, because not only we, we, we keep this person safe but by turning him around, we turn him around before he's developing hape or haze right. so he can recover and make a second summit attempt, which will be successful. If we would not turn him around, he would run into, into developing hape, for example, had to be rescued, going to a hospital and, and expedition season is over for this person. If we monitor and turn him around because he's having a, a bad day, having altitude problems can even happen with a perfect acclimatization. You're having an infection or something, 
and you're having a bad day and you you get altitude problems yep. but the, the the timing is key if you if you act before a situation is developing that is dangerous it's no problem at all people can still do a second attempt and and i think that's the point so we even increase their chances by monitoring and, and not uh, putting them in a risk that uh, where we say you can't climb anymore come down and, and the expedition is over well, I guess, you know, the proof is in the pudding. You have a um, an outstanding um, summit track record plus an outstanding safety record. So you're doing something right, my friend. <laughs> so we look, at that, yeah. look at the season coming up. Last question, then we'll wrap up. Uh, any any uh, expectations for the Nepal Everest 2023 season? How's it looking? I uh, To be honest, I expect a record season. <laughs> I can see with the oxygen orders. Uh, we we are supplying most of the operators, so I expect uh, a really big season this year uh, on on the south side. And but we have uh, Mingma Chi. Uh, he got the, the contract for fixing the ropes from Camp Two to the summit. He's uh, I'm sure he's doing a great job. Uh, and he already said that he's planning to uh, finish the, the the ropes to the summit very early. Uh, and yeah, to 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 open a, a wider summit window for, for all the teams. And, and, th and if this is the case, if weather allows him to be on the summit with, with the ropes, let's say end of April already, uh, this would be great. And we have a whole month of, of possible summit uh, windows and, and this would spread up the teams and, and then I, I don't see big problems Yeah, last, for last, safe and successful season. Yeah, last year was crazy good. I mean, I mean, you know, obviously yeah. there, there were uh, periods like a few, few, few days of bad weather, but across all the Nepal eight thousand meter mountains, it was almost like a six week weather window as opposed to yeah. three days back in two thousand nineteen. That's the, what that's really was behind that long queue that we all saw that picture of. Um, so yeah, let's hope that yeah. the weather is good this year and everybody spreads out. I think you're right about the record. Uh, I'm expecting somewhere around a thousand climbers total, including between Sherpas and members. So it's going to come back to the pre-pandemic uh, um, numbers back in 2018 and 19, where it was every year it was growing and growing. And also, I think this year uh, we're going to see a lot more climbers, both from China and India, which were absent the last few years for you know either Chinese reasons or economic reasons in um, in India. So. Yeah, it's going to be a fun year to watch, and uh, we'll be watching uh, uh, Fruit and Bike Adventures as always. You do a great job of keeping everybody updated and running a safe expedition. So I wish you all the best for this year, my friend. Thank you very much, Alan. It was a pleasure.